Hello, and welcome to the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. This is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and today we'll be talking about hysteria and why mental health is a feminist issue. Trigger warning. Today's episode makes mention of depression and violence of a sexual nature. Over the years, the many feminist movements in history have worked to earn women the right to vote, the ability to attain jobs and pursue careers, and to make decisions about their reproductive rights, among other important milestones. It has also worked towards attaining men's rights to paternal leave when they have children, as well as changing many countries' archaic definitions of rape to include men. The people in feminist movements have also worked tirelessly, constantly re-evaluating themselves to incorporate an intersectional understanding of identity by including race, sexual orientation, gender identity, ability, class and age into feminist politics. And now it's important to tackle mental health, a taboo subject no matter what gender you are. However, I'm going to focus on the mental wellness of women today for one simple reason. Healthcare has always failed and is still failing women. Let's begin with the more than 4,000-year-old pseudo-diagnosis called hysteria. While a most excellent song by the band Muse, it is also the first mental disorder attributable exclusively to women in both scientific and demonological iterations. Yes, you heard that right, demonological. Hysteria was, at its root, a medical explanation for everything that men found mysterious or unmanageable in women, a conclusion only supported by men's dominance over the field of medicine, both past and present. Hysteria was a formally studied psychological disorder that could be found in the DSM. Before its classification as a mental disorder, hysteria was considered a physical ailment, first described medically in 1880 by Jean-Martin Charcot. Even before this, hysteria was thoroughly described in ancient Egyptian and Greek societies. Freud had developed a specific interest in hysteria after his stay with Professor Charcot between 1885 and 1886, although his previous activity mainly consisted of neuropathology and a general medical practice. Most of his initial studies on hysteria, which consisted of hysteria in men, influence of the subconscious, role of traumas, and psychological and sexual factors. Subsequently, Freud developed, with the physician Joseph Brower, a theory of hysteria which encompassed a mixture of previously fixed subconscious ideas with the pathological secret concept by another doctor, Moritz Benedict. After their book, Studies on Hysteria, in 1895, Freud interrupted his collaboration with Brower and developed the concept of conversion of psychological problems into somatic manifestations with a strong sexualization of hysteria. He believed that Actual abuses had occurred in these patients, which is known as the seduction theory. But then he blamed the victims for having deceived him on the issue, so that he subsequently launched a fantasy theory to explain the development of hysterical symptoms without the necessities of actual abuses. Like many of his contemporaries, and contrary to his own claims, Freud did not allow scientific processes of verified experiments, but rather adapted his theories to the evolution of his own beliefs on psychological conditions selectively emphasizing the aspect of his therapies with patients, which supported his emerging biases, with often abrupt changes in theoretical interpretations. All in all, a flawed study, to say the least. While it remains difficult to get a clear, synthetic version of what was Freud's definite theory on hysteria, it is obvious that hysteria really was the origin of what would become Freud's psychoanalytical theory. 
Indeed, psychoanalysis appears to have been initially developed by him, largely in order to absorb and explain his many changes in the interpretation of hysterical manifestations. Hysteria's continued use as a synonym for over-emotional or deranged is quite important because this is its evolution. It's also worth noting how many of the problems physicians were attempting to fix in women patients were not problems when they presented in male patients. Gendered stereotypes, like the ideas that women should be submissive, even-tempered and sexually inhibited, have caused tremendous damage throughout history and continue to do so today. It doesn't seem so coincidental then that most modern treatments for hysteria involved regular marital sex, marriage or pregnancy and childbirth, proper activities for proper women. Throughout history, hysteria has been attributed as affecting only those with a uterus, often thought to be the basis of a variety of health problems. The ancient Egyptians and Greeks, for example, believed the womb was capable of affecting the rest of the body's health and that a uterus could migrate around the female body, placing pressure on other organs and causing a number of ill effects. This roving uterus theory, supported by works from the philosopher Plato and other physicians, was called hysterical suffocation and the offending uterus was usually coaxed back into place by placing good smells near the vagina and bad smells near the mouth. Oh, and sneezing. The philosopher and physician Galen disagreed with the roving uterus theory, believing instead that the retention of female seed within the womb was to blame for the anxiety, insomnia, depression, irritability, fainting and other symptoms women experienced. Throughout these classical texts, pretty much any symptom could be attributed to female sex organs. It was supposedly cured with herbs, sex or sexual abstinence, punished and purified with fire for its association with sorcery, and finally clinically studied as a disease and treated with innovative therapies. Hysteria was only removed from the DSM-3 in 1980, hundreds of years after women worldwide had suffered persecution and misdiagnosis for it. A lot of women's mental health issues are often attributed to hormone changes during puberty, which the WHO says do not cause depression alone. However, depression rates are higher in girls than in boys because girls typically reach puberty before boys do and are more likely to develop depression at an earlier age. Premenstrual problems, or PMS, have severe and debilitating symptoms that disrupt everyday life, sometimes crossing the line into premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, a type of depression that generally requires treatment. The exact interaction between depression and PMS remains unclear because of the patriarchal standards of medicine and severe understudying. It is possible that cyclical changes in estrogen, progesterone and other hormones can disrupt the function of the brain chemicals, such as serotonin, that control the mood. Dramatic hormonal changes occur during pregnancy. Postpartum depression is when new mothers find themselves sad, angry and irritable and experience crying spells soon after giving birth. These feelings, sometimes called the baby blues, are normal and generally subside within a week or two. But more serious, long-lasting, depressed feelings may indicate postpartum depression of a longer term. The effects of PCOS, abortion and miscarriage are also in need of far more study. These depressive episodes related to hormonal changes are never the root cause of prolonged mental illness, however. They are key contributors, but the majority of these illnesses are due to sociopolitical, economic and neurological issues and are merely exacerbated by hormonal fluctuations. Differences in mental health between genders remains an important matter of concern for two main reasons. Firstly, women are still dismissed in the healthcare system out of the based belief that while medicine and mental health have changed a great deal over centuries, hysteria often serves as a catch-all when doctors can't or won't identify other illnesses. 
And secondly, women are constantly and consistently misdiagnosed and mistreated, leading to a ripple effect in their lives in many other ways, such as career, family life, and having a so-called normal existence within society. Studies by the World Health Organization highlight gender differences in rates of common mental disorders, such as depression, anxiety, and sleep concerns. Women predominate in these areas, and while they affect approximately one in three people and constitute a serious public health concern, depression as the second leading cause of global disability is twice as common in women. While this may be partly due to women being more likely to seek help, the organization also cites economic and social policies that cause sudden, disruptive and severe changes to income, employment and social capital that cannot be controlled or avoided and, significantly, increase gender inequality at the rate of common mental disorders. The 2020 Global Gender Gap Report points to the disproportionate burden of household and care responsibilities that women continue to carry compared with men. This contributes to the financial disparities between women and men, affecting overall economic participation and opportunity gaps worldwide, a likely source of significant social distress. The report says, in no country in the world is the amount of time spent by men on unpaid work, mainly domestic and volunteer work, equal to that of a woman. And in many countries, women still spend multiple folds as much time than men on these activities. Even in countries where this ratio is at its lowest, such as Norway, women still spend almost twice as much time as men on unpaid domestic work. This kind of burden, as mentioned in the previous episode, has a significant effect on women's lives and the chances of mental illness increased by 15 times, with overwork in and out of the office being more likely to cause depression. It becomes a cycle by which women, who are already excluded from much of society, face further barriers when presenting with mental illnesses, such as being stopped from exercising their civic, economic and social and cultural rights in some countries, such as voting or opening a bank account, or being discriminated against in the communities in which they live. And while it's true that more men commit suicide than women, women attempt suicide far more than men and usually seek help due to the people who depend on their caregiving being a driving factor for recovery. Rights-based mental health praxis and communication is deeply feminist and necessitates an intersectional approach, which takes on board the ways in which systemic and structural barriers all contribute to women's mental health, as well as psychological distress as related to inclusion, social justice, development, livelihoods, physical health, and human rights. Our ideas of gender roles, race, sexuality, and class strongly inform and perpetuate how we understand mental health. In Conversations of Feminism, we often talk about empowerment through breaking down the systems that seek to oppress us, and the recognition that mental illness is a feminist issue may also give way to access to mental health services, which is, in itself, an issue of bodily autonomy, as well as the increased conversation about mental illness as affecting all genders. We also need to have the conversation about men's health being a woman's rights issue, but more on that another time. Mental illness and the lack of access and treatment is a form of social control over women. Until we are willing to recognize that women are rendered completely powerless in the healthcare system as a whole and that women's mental health has been hinged on outdated and sexist ideas of hysteria, a method used to dismiss women in the past and still permeates today, the trope of the PMSing woman is old and tired. We need to prioritize an overhaul of the way in which we see women's mental health, else we face more and more women being mistreated by the system and society at large. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank my patrons for making this possible. 
you can support me on Patreon for as little as $5 a month and get this podcast three days in advance as well as access to lectures and monthly AMAs. Thank <laughs> you.